Did you just compare Scooby Doo to the OJ trial? Alex, if I could bring it back to the OJ trial, I will bring it back to the OJ trial. Welcome, fellow sleuths, to Meddling Adults, a game show where we grab our five friends in a van and we go head-to-head to test our wits against the prowess of fictional young detectives for charity. I'm your host, Mike Schubert, and I'm notoriously bad at solving children's mysteries, which is why I am safely behind the judges' table, letting others duke it out instead. Our contestants this week are Kyle Banduho and Alex McDaniel. Today's mysteries are from What's New Scooby-Doo. Before we get into anything else, let's meet those contestants. I want to make it more of a point to be doing... Big hype intros. Alex, you have inspired me to listen to Brett Goldstein's podcast, Films to be Buried With. And his intros are so wonderful that I want to do more than just say names. So we've got the managing editor of For the Wind at USA Today, Alex McDaniel, as well as the host and creator of Big Screen Sports is Kyle Banduho. And together, as we're trying to get more co-hosts battling it out in this season. The two of you have done a whole bunch of wonderful episodes on big screen sports, talking about sports movies, talking about rom-coms, talking about Ted Lasso, an incredible television program. Alex and Kyle, how is it going? Hi, this is so exciting. It's going awesome. I am very excited to be back on Meddling Adults. We're growing our brand. (laughs) (laughs) Kyle is here for redemption. Alex is here fresh in the mix. So we've already spoken in the past with Kyle about his history with children's mysteries of sorts. Are you big into this stuff, Alex? Are you a big whodunit fan at all? You know, not really. Like, my sister was really into Scooby-Doo. And so, you know, I'd watch those with her. They're entertaining. I was really into the boxcar children. Okay. Like, I read all those books when I was younger. So it's not even that I wasn't into it. I think it was just my age and stuff. There were some things you could pick up on. And if you didn't, you know, you tried it later. But I know I'm going to be bad at this because I lack a lot of common sense. (laughs) 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 It'll be fun, though. What a journey. Oh, well, that is fantastic. Before we get into the mysteries... Obviously, this is a game show for charity, so you two will be playing for charities. Kyle, which charity will you be supporting today? I will be playing for Blessings in a Backpack, specifically the Bernie, Texas chapter. Blessings in a Backpack is a charity that helps underprivileged kids. It packs a backpack full of food for them and meals to carry them over the weekend. A lot of children who are on meal assistance at schools also uh, don't get the necessary meals that they need during the weekends or when they're not at school. So the charity gives them the food in a backpack, sends it home with them every weekend so them and their siblings are able to eat for the weekend. Everyone Google it. There might be a chapter near you that you can support. But yeah, big fan of Blessings in a Backpack. Awesome. Fantastic. And Alex, how about you? I am playing for the American Cancer Society. Eight years ago, my father passed away from cancer, and my mother is currently battling terminal lung cancer. And it's just, you know, one of those things that you don't think about until your life is directly impacted by it. But the American Cancer Society does a lot of great work making sure research dollars go where they need to go. And it's just a cause I'm very passionate about. That's awesome. Great. Well, two great organizations, but there can only be one winner because this is a game show. So here is how the game works. I will be recapping three quick mysteries from the esteemed television program, What's New Scooby-Doo? 
Neither of you have seen these ahead of time or watched these in prep. I'm going to lay out all of the clues. I will ask you for your accusations. Each correct guess of culprit, means, method, motive, etc. will earn you points. There's also bonus points at stake. So if your guess matches my incorrect guess, you will get a Misery Loves Company bonus point. And if you say anything else that's fun or wacky or ridiculous, I'll throw them around as well. Life is pretend. So are these points. Who cares? We need joy in this world because, hey, for the past three years of me starting the show, because it started in the pandemic, every season I'm like, maybe next year will be better. And it never is. So let's try to <laughs> eternal sadness. So let's talk about kids shows. <laughs> let's have some fun. We're all in a good mood. We will have three rounds. At the end of the three rounds, if the score is tied, we will settle it in the only fitting way, which is a sudden death riddle. But now we can put the pedal to the metal and get into our first mystery, which is, I'm happy to say, the first ever episode of What's New Scooby-Doo? Season 1, Episode 1, at least at the time of recording in March of 2022. You can watch them all on HBO Max if you've got that. No plug. They're not paying me, but they should be. The first episode is called There's No Creature Like Snow Creature. I see what they're doing there. I get it. (laughs) What's fun, and you will see another mystery here, is that either it's a wonderful pun or... It's incredibly lazy. I won't spoil the next two titles, but there's some fun stuff. But yes, there's no creature like Snow Creature. So the first scene we see is a sassy woman with a vaguely European accent named Gretchen snowboarding with a snowboarder named Chris Klug, who is a real person. Chris Klug did his own voice acting for the show and is an Olympic alpine snowboarder bronze medalist in, I believe, the 2000 Olympics. And these two folks are snowboarding. As they are doing so, they're a bit sassy back and forth. Gretchen saying that Chris thinks he's all high and mighty because he won the bronze medal. He is trying to get one last slope run in before the end of the day. She says she doesn't want to do it. So he says, later, poser, and then starts shredding down the mountain. <laughs> so he's kind of a jerk then. He's playing himself, but he's a jerk. I, he was really nice. He was very nice of being like, oh, we only have time for one more run. Do you want to go? And then Gretchen, in her all-over-the-place European accent, is like, oh, Olympian Chris Klug thinks that he can do whatever he wants because <laughs> he got the bronze medal. And then he goes, later, poser. <laughs> and then goes, just starts shredding. To reference a movie that Alex and I recently covered, Palm Springs, from Origins Unknown. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. So he starts shredding. Unfortunately, a giant snow ice monster appears and attacks him. And then cut to the theme song, the perfect theme song by Simple Plan, which they do perform live. Highly recommend watching them perform it at various concerts. Great stuff. I need to see this in person. So we cut to the gang arriving in the Mystery Machine at the Wilkinson Snowboarding Open. And the namesake of this open, Mr. Wilkinson, is being interviewed by news reporter Nancy Chang. We learn from this interview that Mr. Wilkinson is a software billionaire, so he's probably a terrible person. He's awful. (laughs) There are no good billionaires. You know what? He did it. Early, early prediction. What's fun is my guess always for these is the first person you meet just because Scooby-Doo rules, at least for the old Scooby-Doo episodes, it's always the first person you meet. So this being the first guy we met, I was very happy because right away I was like, great, not only do I get to blame the billionaire, but he's the first person. So if it's my narrative, fantastic. (laughs) So the gang gets out of the mystery machine and 
before they can talk to Billionaire Boy, they meet Gretchen. Her name is Gretchen Muller. Mueller. I don't know how it actually is. I don't know if it's like her pronunciation of her last name or just her accent. But we learn that she is in the snowboarding competition. We still don't learn what country she's from because Fred just goes, you've been winning snowboarding contests all across Europe. <laughs> various countries with various different accents. You're from Eastern or Western Europe. <laughs> So the news reporter, Nancy Chang, is interviewing Bruce Wilkinson about the mysterious injury that recently took place of Olympic bronze medalist Chris Klug, who was supposed to compete in this competition. And he is voiced by, I'm not sure if you guys are into voice actors, but Kevin Michael Richardson, the guy who does the voice of... Gondu from Lilo and Stitch is this incredibly deep voice. He's one of those, like, you might not recognize him, but he's voiced a ton of stuff that's come out in the past. And recently, he did the voices of the twins in Invincible. So he's this incredible voice actor. But him getting to do the stuffy billionaire is great <laughs> because he has big, mm, yes, energy, which <laughs> is it. real fun. She asks him if he's worried about the competition now that the star has been injured. And he says, mm, with a million dollars at stake, I think the other competitors will be hungry for victory. And each member of the gang picks up a different thing from this back and forth. Fred, who's obsessed with snowboarding, asks Chris Klug was injured. And then Velma, the only one who solves crimes, says mysterious circumstances. And then Daphne goes one million dollars. And then Shaggy goes hungry. <laughs> and it's just <laughs> mwah, uh, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Everyone just sticking to what they do best. Exactly. With the men competing against the woman. Mm hmm. A very progressive competition. It's just everybody oh, wow. going We'd at it. We love to see it. Okay. We love uh -huh. that. We love inclusion. Exactly. This show for coming out in 2003, I think, wildly progressive. They rewrote Daphne to be not a damsel in distress. They usually do a good job about gender neutraling stuff. It is a very ahead of its time show in representation. Absolutely love to see it. It's aged like a fine wine from the year 2003, I assume. Was that a good year? Who's to say? I know nothing about wine. We went to Iraq <laughs> in 2003. So oh, this fuck. might have been the highlight. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. We've got a oh shit bonus point awarded to Kyle uh, for reminding us of how bad 2003 was. <laughs> Score stands at one to zero. So the gang talks to the injured Chris Klug about being attacked by the snow monster. And he recaps what we saw in the TV show. Fred then decides that he's going to pose as a competitor to investigate the happenings from the inside. As he is getting ready to become a competing alpine snowboarder, I guess, someone comes in named, and this is their name, Avalanche Anderson. <laughs> so Avalanche Anderson shows up and... He comes in saying that a serious competitor like Chris Klug wouldn't lie about a monster to purposely quit to try to find some excuse to get out of the competition. We learn that Avalanche Anderson is famous from snowboarding in action movies. He's not necessarily an actor, but he's a very good snowboarder, and he was cast in a couple of different movies that involved snowboarding action chase scenes. So that is his claim to fame. We would cover those on the podcast probably. Yeah, right? we would. Yeah. That makes it sports. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the gang begins to investigate. Velma is dressed up in a comically large amount of layers because she doesn't want to get a cold. I identify with that on a very personal level. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the gang, while they're investigating, they overhear Nancy Chang on the phone with her producer saying that she can guarantee higher ratings and more viewers for the competition coverage. So they think that is a little suspicious. They then see a large shadowy figure walking up the mountain. So they follow it and they follow it all the way to an abandoned, broken down old ski jump. And before they can follow it further, the snow monster appears and there's a classic Scooby-Doo chase scene. From this chasing, though, we learn that the snow monster is translucent because at one point Fred tries to make Shaggy feel okay, saying, don't worry, Shaggy, we've seen this before. It's probably some guy in a suit, but then they flash a flashlight through it and you can see straight through it. So, uh oh, I do think it's funny that they have solved countless mysteries, but still they're always ready to believe that it could be something supernatural because there could be the one time. You never know. You never know. All it takes is one time. Right? Yeah. And I feel like Shaggy would be the one who is most on that edge if it could be supernatural. Like, we know how Shaggy spends his spare time. Like, what he's put in his body. He's probably watching a lot of Avatar. Like, Shaggy <laughs> would definitely make that reach. And listen, you can't call a home run unless you predicted every pitch. That's, that's how I feel. <laughs> that's, uh, that is definitely words to live by. Which Avatar is he watching? Is he watching the James Cameron classic or The Last Airbender? Or the M. Night Shyamalan movie flop? He is probably watching the James Cameron version. Okay. Because that is the first thing I think of when I think of eating an edible and watching a movie. So <laughs> Okay. Yeah, you're like, oh, it's Pocahontas, but blue people, so it's different. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Unobtainium! <laughs> I will never forgive them. Fred distracts the monster before it can attack Velma, good guy Fred, and then as he is getting it to chase after him, he tumbles down the mountain and he breaks his leg, which, woof. That is a tough look. Mm-hmm. A shadowy figure appears over him, and he shines his flashlight on it, and it's just a dude in a green jumpsuit, and this is a very grumpy man named Theodore. He's in charge of upkeeping the trails, and he keeps the gondolas running, the ski lift going, and he now says, what am I going to have to do, start a taxi service for injured guests? Like, I don't know, man. Okay, Theodore, uh, relax. Right? Calm down. This is a ski resort. This happens all the time. People get hurt. I've broken my arm snowboarding. It happens. So when they bring up the snow monster to Theodore, he immediately dismisses it as a ridiculous folklore, doesn't believe it at all, which I, of course, found suspicious. Are you going to tell me a grumpy old man is very set in his ways and not <laughs> willing to believe anything is out of the ordinary? I cannot believe it. Color me shocked. Who'd have thunk? <laughs> <laughs> so they decide, let's investigate Theodore because he had creepy vibes and he showed up right after we got attacked. So they go to his cabin and... Inside, they see a bunch of dirty dishes and cobwebs. Daphne calls his home decor style, quote, rustic mid-century creep, which is great. And Velma finds an old newspaper article on the wall, which is about Theodore. And it says he was a former champion ski jumper, but his career was cut short when he crashed into a snowboarder. And it's such an old article that it phrases it as one of these so-called snowboarders. <laughs> <laughs> So the snow creature then rushes past the cabin and the gang hears Avalanche Anderson scream in pain and they go over and he's in a snowbank saying that he too has suffered an injury, says his ankle is really badly sprained. So we cut to a doctor bandaging up his leg. The doctor suggests that Avalanche should go in for x-rays, but Avalanche says, ah, what's the point? I can't compete 
in the competition anyway, so why bother? Which I think, smart decision, because as someone who has gone to first aid on a ski resort, it sucks because I broke my arm. They charged me $10,000 for the treatment that they did to my broken arm, which included messing up three Novocaine shots to put my arm back in place. None of them worked, so they just had to pop it back into place, full pain, super cool stuff. And they also charged me $250 per ace bandage, I think. Maybe it was $50 per ace bandage and $250 per Novocaine shot, but the bill was wild and it was, of course, out of network. So I had to cough off 10 G's, baby. The lesson there is you should have broken your arm in Canada. Mm, that would have been the play. Always go skiing in Canada. Yeah, I was in Tahoe. I was foolish. I should have gone farther north to Vancouver. What was I thinking? What tough was beat. I thinking? Tough beat. Mm-hmm. Bruce Wilkinson is frustrated because sponsors are pulling out and now we've got two of the big name competitors also hurt and they're not in the mix. So he's very frustrated by this whole situation. Daphne feels like something is off because if this guy's supposed to be a billionaire, why is he concerned about money? Which shout out to Daphne being right on the money because a thousand million dollars is a lot. We should get rid of the word billion and it should be replaced by 1,000 million so that people can process how much money that is. It's so much. 1,000 million dollars. Come on. It's a lot of million dollars. All the million dollars this guy has. (laughs) Objectively too many dollars. Fred then tells Shaggy that now that Fred is hurt, Shaggy should enter the mix as a decoy pro snowboarder so that the monster will try to attack. Classic Fred making Shaggy the bait of the trap. Because there's not a thing about Shaggy that suggests that he would be a good snowboarder. No. I mean, maybe his general Shaggy stoner guy vibes, but he's certainly not an athletic specimen by any means. We cut to Shaggy being on the slopes and Gretchen is there and she sasses him and can tell that he's not really a good snowboarder. So what does she do? Pushes him down the mountain, even though he doesn't want to snowboard. So, of course, while Shaggy is going down, he gets chased by the giant snow monster. And Shaggy at one point loses his snowboard. But Scooby comes through on a sled and catches Shaggy, of course. And then here's the best part. They're on a sled. They get to a frozen lake. But the frozen lake isn't completely frozen. There's a part where it's all just water. So... In order to get away from the snow monster, Scooby takes out his claws and shows one in particular, draws a circle around them so they have a ice circular thing, and then turns his tail into a propeller, and then they speedboat away. And it's just perfect Scooby-Doo hijinks. It's top-notch, no notes, zero complaints. As one does. As one does. I want to live in the Scooby-Doo universe. I do too. And a key note is that this chase scene was set to the instrumental version of the theme song, What's New Scooby-Doo by Simple Plan, which is a perfect song, just really coming out the gates hot in season one, episode one. So we cut back to the resort lodge. Velma finds an article about Bruce selling off parts of his empire to pay creditors back. So maybe his billionaire status is in question. Daphne sees a light flickering on the top of the ski slope, and Fred looks through these night vision goggles that he has, and he sees a person wearing a ski mask looking very suspicious. So Daphne says, I'm going to go investigate it, and Fred goes, no way, it's too dangerous for, and Daphne goes, for what? For a girl? I'll be fine. (laughs) Which is so solid. So she goes alone because Velma can't go because despite all her layers, Velma is sick. She's sneezing up a storm. Fred tries to make her feel better by giving her a box of tissues and a bunch of snowboarding movies starring Avalanche Anderson that the resort has. 
So Daphne is about to go and Fred goes, okay, I'll keep a lookout. You be careful. And Daphne goes, I'm always careful. And then we cut to her going off of a ramp on a snowmobile. It's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a great time. Yeah, she's killing it. So she snowmobiles out to Theodore's cabin and Fred and her have an earpiece situation going on where he's keeping a lookout and relaying what he sees. And he warns her that the creature is coming and she turns around and sees that the creature breaks into the cabin that she was checking out. She uses a hairdryer to blast heat onto the ice of it, which kind of gets the creature stuck. And then she's able to walk him under a thing where she uses the blow dryer to make a big snowbank fall on him. Genius stuff from Daphne. Love a good hairdryer usage. (laughs) So she starts running away. And then we have Shaggy, Scooby, and Velma in the kitchen of the resort. They overhear Bruce telling Avalanche Anderson and Chris that they have to compete because the Wilkinson Empire is relying on the success of the competition. And Chris goes, sorry, rich dude, no can do, which I (laughs) thought was a star quote from Chris Klug. We love someone telling a billionaire no. Because they don't hear it nearly enough. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So these three, Shaggy, Scooby, Velma, also then see that Nancy was listening in on the conversation. So this again, why is she so involved in the mix? They think this is a little sketchy. So then the gang all reconvenes to go over the suspects. Daphne was safe. She was able to snowmobile away to safety. So they're trying to think. They think, okay, Nancy Chang wants ratings. Wilkinson doesn't have money anymore, so maybe he doesn't want to give the million-dollar prize away. The competitors, so like Sassy Gretchen, they might be trying to win so they could do it. Or Theodore just hates snowboarders in general, but also this competition. It could be him, too. We cut to Shaggy and Scooby on the slopes trying to lure the snow creature. And, of course, it appears behind them. Fred, Daphne, and Velma set up a trap. We get a big chase scene. And we have the snow monster falling off of a big height. And when it falls down, it crashes and breaks. And we realize that the snow monster has actually been a robot the whole time. So Velma pulls out a power chip. And Fred realizes that it is made out of see-through lucite made to look like ice. Is lucite a real material? I have no idea. Definitely something Fred would absolutely know about, too. Like, Fred doesn't take science classes. Yeah? But he does. He's very good with, like information that makes for good pickup lines. <laughs> like, <laughs> like fun facts at a bar. Like, you, you ever heard of Lucite? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's kind of the vibe. <laughs> Alex gets calling Fred out, bonus point awarded. <laughs> so now it's one-to-one. So Google tells me that Lucite is just a fancy word for plexiglass. Oh, that's that makes it even better for Fred for his pickup. Mm-hmm. It is the trademark name of polymethyl methacrylate, a synthetic organic compound of high molecular weight made by a combination of many simple molecules of the ester methyl methyl crylate monomer into long chains polymer. Uh, and then it keeps going on and on and we don't have time for this anymore. Shout out to the Lucite fans listening at home or in their cars that were screaming this. Big Lucite <laughs> How do you not know what Lucite is? <laughs> yeah, shout out to the Lucite fans out there. So it's made out of Lucite and it was controlled by some sort of remote control situation. So they're trying to figure out who it could be. Daphne sees a mystery person in a ski mask again running away towards the top of the ski slope. So they're going to chase after them. Velma sneezes and causes an avalanche, which knocks over the person. And then the gang unmasks them to figure out, dun, 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 who it is. So I turn it over to the two of you. Who do you think is behind the robot ice monster and why? Hmm. I have a theory, but Kyle, you go first. Man. So I feel like 
all signs point to Mr. Wilkinson. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a billionaire, but he's struggling with money. He's a software billionaire. He knows robots. Mm-hmm. And he's been hurt, overheard saying he needs the money. It's too obvious. I'm not exactly sure who it is, but it's way too obvious. <laughs> I am I am leaning that it is Avalanche Anderson because okay. it is too obvious and because he didn't get x-rayed and he actually faked his injury or they're in cahoots. Okay. But that's what I've got. I, I, it's just too obvious, so it's not Mr. Wilkinson. Alex, your theory. I also think it's Avalanche Anderson. And okay. my two reasons are when they were going over the suspects, he was not one of them, unless you left that out. But when you said it earlier, he was not one that they listed. And because this show is so campy and cheesy, of course, an avalanche would reveal Avalanche Anderson. <laughs> you know, if you're going to write for Scooby-Doo, you want that kind of poetic justice. Mm-hmm. That's my theory. Okay, I'm happy to say you are both correct. Yes. It was Avalanche Anderson. Great. Now, I awarded you both three points for getting the correct suspect. I've given a bonus point to Kyle because he picked up on the key piece of information He didn't want x-rays because the injury was fake. They never saw him get hurt. They just heard him scream, and then he said he got hurt, so there was no proof. But what was weird, and I left this out because I didn't want to throw you all off and stuff. The doctor, while wrapping it up, the first thing we hear him say is, that ankle is pretty tender. Do you want x-rays? So the real villain is this doctor (laughs) who couldn't tell that this dude was just faking an ankle injury. So clearly this doctor's just trying to get money for the ski resort because this dude wasn't hurt at all. Exactly. He's trying to send them the $10,000 bill that you got sent. Right? So that was the one key piece of information. The other one that Velma reveals that I think was just complete baloney is she said that when she spent that night watching Avalanche Anderson movies, she realized, oh, because he's in Hollywood, he must know people in the special effects world. So that's how. So I was like, that's, that's bad, Velma. The, yeah, the x-ray thing is way better. The other thing they said is the reason he kept going up to the top of the mountain is because since it was a remote control robot thing, that would give better broadcasting signals. So that was how he was able to control it and all of that. Did they give a motive? He wanted to win the competition, and he used to be a very good snowboarder in general, and he was mad that Chris Klug entered this competition because, of course, Olympic bronze medalist was going to beat action movie star. So he wanted to thwart Klug, and he wanted to then make him not look like he was behind it, which is why he faked his own injury. I don't know why he didn't just stop at getting Klug injured and then going through with it. So feels like Avalanche might not have seen this through in the best way, but that's what happens when you're a grumpy action movie star, I guess. Man. Not a smart guy. You know, with a name like Avalanche, not necessarily the the brightest bulb. But that is the end of the first mystery. Kyle has a slight lead, five to four, as we will go into our break. And after we come back, we will discuss the final two Scooby-Doo mysteries. Hello and welcome to the mid-roll break for season four, episode four of Meddling Adults. Not much to say here, going to keep things quick. Just want to say thank you for listening. And I also want to thank everyone who's supporting the show on Patreon. Our Patreon numbers have really gone up since season four came back. And that's really cool because that is the best way for us to raise money for charity. So if you want to join the Patreon team, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash meddlingadults. Those funds go into the Meddling Adults funds along with things like our merchandise sales and any live shows we do and the advertising money, stuff like that. And we take that money 
cover the expenses of making the show. And then the proceeds go to charity and it will go to the charities at the end of the season. So once we finish season four, we'll take all our winners. We'll take the money. We'll divide it evenly amongst them. And then boom, we make the payment. That's how it all works. So thank you to everyone who's facilitating making that happen by joining the Patreon team at patreon.com slash meddling adults. Now, I mentioned advertisements. That's what you are about to hear. These are some locally inserted ads. If you live internationally, they might be in your country's native language. They might be about the city you're living in, but these ads help raise money for charity as well. So once those ads are complete, we'll get back to the rest of this episode of Meddling Adults. All right, we are back and we are here for mystery number two. And this is the other end of the naming of episodes spectrum. This episode title is Riva Ross Regis, which is just Scooby Dooifying Viva Las Vegas. That's the title of this one. Okay, we did the same thing with the Flintstones, Viva Rock Vegas. So uh-huh. at least that's kind of a pun. This was just, I don't know, put R's in front of the letters and then <laughs> boom. So. The opening scene in this one is a magician by the name of Rufus Raucus. He's performing a show with his assistant, Felidia Flanders. And Felidia has, I just have to note, very cool berry-colored hair. Not important, but important because she looks great. <laughs> Rufus is a very much David Blaine type where he is strapped to the wheel of misfortune and he is attempting to do an escape from inside the Atomic Lodge, a historic Las Vegas hotel that is about to be demolished by a 10-ton wrecking ball. And then the big mystery is to see can he get free from his shackles and get out before the building is demolished. Highly illegal, but here we go. This was just pure happenstance because I think this is episode six of season one. Nancy Chang, our news reporter friend, is on the case and she is covering the show live. I will just say just because someone is in multiple episodes and they were innocent in a previous one does not mean they can't be guilty. So don't rule out Nancy because of that. I appreciate that you pointing that out because I was about to say, well, that means it's not her. <laughs> we have had situations in the past where one of Velma's friends, there's this, or not even friend, it's this nerdy dude who's obsessed with Velma. In one episode, he's just the dorky, annoying guy. And in another one, he's the villain because he wanted to impress Velma and she was not impressed by him being evil. A villainous simp. <laughs> Tales of this time. If you want to write off Nancy for any reason, uh, you can. Just don't let it be that she was in a previous episode. So she's covering it. Everyone but Rufus runs out of the way, but Rufus is struggling to escape. The wrecking ball gets stuck in a part of the hotel and then stuck so badly that the crane starts to like fly off the ground instead of retract the wrecking ball. So the crane operator just runs out of the mix and then the whole thing topples down. It's terrifying. Nancy Chang says, cut the feed, cut the feed. And then we cut to the theme song. And uh, after the theme song, we've got the gang arriving in Las Vegas. We don't exactly know what happened, but we'll learn soon. So while they're driving in through Las Vegas, Velma is listing off the various attractions. And a very fun thing that What's New Scooby-Doo does is whether it's because of royalty naming rights stuff or because they love puns, they make some puns of stuff. So Velma points out the Garagio Hotel. <laughs> and then Shaggy points out that they are showing Rats the musical. And Fred then points out that 
Vegas has great Elvis impersonators. And then he grabs Daphne's sunglasses and tries to do his own impression. It's quite terrible. And then Daphne takes them off his face. Fred goes, hey, I need those for the impression. She goes, oh, you do? And then snaps them in half and goes, oh, man, these darn fragile imported sunglasses. (laughs) Fred strikes me as more of a Spearmint Rhino guy. I'm surprised he didn't make a reference to that. (laughs) What is Spearmint Rhino? I don't even know what this is. Spearmint Rhino. I just want to preface to anyone. I actually have not been to Vegas, but Spearmint Rhino is a, a very famous gentleman's club in Las Vegas. Okay. I've also never been to Vegas because my friends are nerds. So no bachelor (laughs) party has happened in Vegas yet. So they arrive at the resort that they're going to. And I'm very happy because it is called Newark, Newark, Las Vegas's first New Jersey themed resort. And it's truly perfect. There's so much you could dive into with that. It's great. I am born and raised in New Jersey. I think Newark is horrible. I firmly believe that when you look at a map and you see a dot of Newark, it's not actually a city dot. It is a very small state border. It is not part of the state. It is something else. Newark's its own world. But the resort, very much making fun of Newark, just has these giant oil refinery looking type things. It's all black and gray and neon. It's a very good New Jersey joke. I got to give them props. So the gang has backstage passes for the concert of teen pop sensation Lindsay Pagano, who is a real person, but did not have a very long lasting music career. I did go on a Wikipedia deep dive. She competed on The Voice recently and made it through three rounds on Team Shakira. I've never watched The Voice, so I do not know if this is good. And uh, (laughs) she had a somewhat budding career in the early 2000s and then it didn't take off. She was signed to Warner Brothers Records at the time, which I assume this being a WB production is how they got her in the mix because they probably didn't have to pay for the rights to use her music on the TV show. Wow. So she actually got her music in the episode? And she did music. She wrote songs for the episode, and we'll get into one of them because it's fantastic. Oh, can't wait. Exciting. She does her own voice acting and everything. She does a pretty good job. Gotta give credit to Lindsay Pagano. Del Stone is the first person we meet. He welcomes the gang in, and he is the manager of the hotel. Fred asks him how he decided on a New Jersey-themed resort, and Del said, well, there was already a pirate ship-themed one, so this was our second choice. And Fred goes, oh, that makes sense. And Del has to explain that that was a joke. And I appreciate Fred doing this, because the thing that I like to do when people quote-unquote make jokes that aren't jokes, I like to just pretend that I have no idea what they were going for, so then the person has to admit that they were kidding, and they're embarrassed by it, and it's a little game I like to play with myself at parties. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if your joke is just saying something that isn't true and then saying just kidding at the end, that's nothing. That's not a joke. You just said something that wasn't true, and then you said just kidding afterwards. It's absolutely nothing. Try harder. Did you say his name is Del Stone? Del Stone. That's a great name. Is that a joke on anything? Again, is this a Las Vegas reference? I couldn't tell you if this was a pun or just a good name, but it does have a nice ring to it. I like it. All right, that's Del Stone for you. Now, the gang gets a tour of the Spectacular Spackle Dome, which is the venue at Newark, Newark. And Del Stone says that Spackle is the corporate sponsor because Spackle is one of Newark's biggest exports. And Fred laughs at this because he thinks it's a joke, and Del has to explain this isn't a joke. And that's just a very fitting thing of a Newark export. I don't think it's true, but it is funny that Spackle would be our main export. Go Newark. You're doing your best. 
<laughs> You're doing great, Newark. <laughs> the airport's fine, I guess. So a black cat appears from behind Dell, and Scooby chases it because he's a dog. But the cat vanishes behind a floating statue of the late Rufus Raucus. Yes, the late. We learn he died in this accident that we saw in the intro. Levitating apparently was his signature trick, so the statue levitates. Did they say in the intro when this was? Like, did he just die, or was this like a long time ago? It's pretty recently. We don't know an exact timeline, but it's not too far after. Already got a statue up, though. That's good. Yeah. You were, you were respected. Exactly. So Rufus was supposed to be the Spackledome's main attraction, and the theater was designed specifically for his show, but he died or disappeared? Uh, we'll see Rufus's fate soon. So Shaggy and Scooby are the last to leave seeing the statue because they're going to go off and see Lindsay's rehearsal. And the statue has laser eyes come out of it. So Shaggy and Scooby leave. And then we just cut to Lindsay's rehearsal. Don't know what's going on with the laser eyes in the statue, but it happened. So when we cut to the rehearsal, Lindsay is performing a song. Now, because the venue was made for Rufus, it's all Egyptian pyramid pharaoh type themed and Lindsay, i guess wrote songs around it because the clip of the song we hear from her says quote if you think i love you boy you're living in denial which is a plus <laughs> <laughs> oh that's a banger it's pretty good while the i can't song... believe she didn't have a better career <laughs> <laughs> while the song continues you can listen to the full thing on soundcloud i did find the one the, while the song continues because i tried to hear what this lyric was but the gang is talking over part of it i think what it is is tootin come on or she'll bury you in style i think she's saying tootin come on to make a tootin common joke yes. but just high quality egyptian themed parody work here Love not this. enough songs with deep cut egyptian themes <laughs> right yeah we've got walk like an egyptian which just feels like appropriation but to have egyptian puns let's get that in the mix need that now, during Lindsay's rehearsal, someone hijacks the sound system and says, get out in a very spooky voice. And on the screen, we see a masked Rufus Raucus and he shoots flames out of his eyes from the Jumbotron screen. Don't know how they managed to make this happen, but the flames burn a rope that is holding up this large prop canoe type Nile River boat thing above Lindsay and it's falling and it's about to crush her and then we cut to a commercial break and then when we come back from the commercial break Fred pushes her out of the way saving her from the crashing object. Lindsay then invites Fred to lunch to thank him and she's very smitten by Fred. She's all very lovey-dovey with him. Fred, completely oblivious, says, oh no I just ate an energy bar so I'm super full. <laughs> just completely missing it. Love our obtuse friend Fred here. Now, Daphne screams because she sees Fate's Fools walk out. Fate's Fools is a boy band with three members, and their names, I kid you not, are Flapjack, B-Ball, and Timmy. <laughs> and they are Lindsay's opening act. It's like the Skylar sisters. <laughs> Just like it. <laughs> exactly the same. So one of the boys, who we later learn is Flapjack, he complains and... He honestly looks like a young Avalanche Anderson. Like, it's very <laughs> similar to the character model. Just this white guy with spiky hair, but it's spiky red hair and is these gross purplish glasses. Not a good look. And the way he talks is just like in, 
white guy, mid 2000s. Oh, Snoop Dogg is a thing. Cultural appropriation levels because he says, quote, hey, what's with all the flappity lip flip? We're totally trying to kick it chilly willy. And you peeps are bumming our Van Winkles with all this woofering and tweetering. That just hurt me very deep. That was painful. Yeah. Pretty rough stuff. Wild, though, that this tweetering reference is in reference to speakers and not Twitter, the app, because it didn't exist yet. It's woofers and tweeters, the music thing. So I missed that world before Twitter <laughs> existed. <laughs> oh, God. I'm nostalgic for a simpler time. Mm-hmm. Alex, bonus point, because uh, my phone has been yelling at me recently that I've been on Twitter too much because, you know, the world's ending. Um, <laughs> Gotta keep up with it. Scores five to five. So Velma asks what that means. And he says that they're being too noisy and the band members can't relax before they perform. Lindsay tells them that a ghost has disturbed the rehearsal and the boys mock her for thinking that ghosts are real. Del Stone comes running out to ask if everyone's okay because he heard there was a disturbance. And then Flapjack says, quote, Lindsay's all wiggity with the boo-hoo, sir. Might be funkalicious if me and my boyos headline in her place. So clearly, his motive is set forth. Lindsay says that no ghost will keep her from performing, but Del Stone says the show is canceled until they can figure out what is going on. Shaggy and Scooby had run out of the theater out of fear, naturally, and we see them open a door to the green room because Shaggy and Scooby, we learned, they are the ones that won the backstage passes from a radio contest, but the only reason Shaggy wanted to go through with it was because he thought that they would get free food in the green room. So because they see the green room door, they think there might be free food in there. And Shaggy says, oh, the green room, maybe it's salad and veggies. And they try to go in, but Rufus Raucus's ghost is hovering behind the door. And he does a classic Scooby-Doo chase scene with them. He corners them at the end of the hallway, ties them up in cables, but then he explodes into flames and leaves. And the gang and Lindsay come to see what all of the commotion is. Velma notices that these cables leak water and they free Shaggy and Scooby. Scooby's metal collar gets stuck to the floor, and then Fred realizes that the floor is magnetized. And Velma says, oh, the cables are hydraulic, so that they move when water is forced through it. I learned something about hydraulics today. (laughs) Big science episode. Right? Learning a lot. Yeah, wow. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Lucite, we've (laughs) we've got hydraulics and how magic tricks can work. She remembers, oh right, the theater was built for Rufus, so the illusions must have been built into the whole theater as part of a show. So Daphne finds the ghost's mask on the costume rack, and she realizes that the perpetrator must have ditched it to leave the theater unnoticed, and Velma says, or to try to blend in with the people who are still inside. So the gang goes over the suspects. Okay, so we've got Daphne thinking that the boy band is doing it to try to get rid of Lindsay so that they can be the headliners. Fred wonders if it could be Del Stone, but Shaggy brings up why would Del Stone want to sabotage his own theater? Lindsay explains that Dell is just the manager, though, not the owner of the theater, and he had been losing it and sold it to some big conglomerate. So we cut to Dell tiptoeing and sneaking out of a door marked private. And he's wearing this really nice-looking mint-colored robe and these pink-tinted glasses. And Fred, Shaggy, and Scooby are waiting outside. He runs away. They chase him into a steam room, and the steam fogs up Dell's glasses so he can't see who it is. 
Fred tries to disguise his voice by doing a Elvis impression. Dell thinks it's Engelbert Humperdinck, which I learned is a British singer with a very funny name. <laughs> and Dell starts to reveal some things, says that the ghost isn't a ghost because Rufus isn't dead. And then Fred is so surprised in his normal voice, he goes, what? And then Dell goes, wait a second, and then kicks them out of the steam room. So we cut to the gang and Lindsay gathered around a table in the theater. The girls had gone shopping, and Velma is very excited. She reveals what she got, and it's an identical orange turtleneck to what she's already wearing because they wear the same thing in every episode, basically. And she goes, oh, I just couldn't resist, which is fantastic. I feel that, though, because once I find something that fits and works, in fact, I bought my first turtleneck recently, and I enjoyed it. It was comfy. I liked how I looked in it, so I bought two more in different colors. That's a smart play. I recently have become more of a turtleneck boy. I wore a turtleneck as part of a costume. I was number two from Austin Powers, and I wore that to a costume party with my now wife. And I remember at the time just putting it on and going like, do I look really good? She was like, you look great. So I asked for turtlenecks for Christmas from her. They're great. I'm big in on the turtleneck boy. It's uh, it's it. good. I got a really long neck, so it kind of like makes me look more normal, uh, <laughs> which is good. So at this comedy slash magic venue, they see Felidia, Rufus's old assistant on stage, and she's introducing the comedy magic act of Mr. Wacky Pants. So Mr. Wacky Pants comes out. He has orange hair and a very goofy mustache. He's in this yellow suit jacket over a purple shirt. It's like a clown turned into a comedian. It's pretty rough. There's polka dots all over it. He's an absolute mess. He pulls Shaggy and Scooby onto the stage to be his audience volunteers, and Felidia then brings out this big thing called the puzzle box and Shaggy and Scooby step inside of it and Mr. Wacky Pants scrambles the sections of the puzzle box and opens it up but they don't look jumbled at all it's supposed to be one of those reveal things where like oh the legs are at the top and the heads are at the bottom and Mr. Wacky Pants can't do it but then Felidia basically says hold my beer and she does it perfectly executes it flawlessly. So after the show, Mystery Inc. is in Felidia's dressing room and she is telling the gang that there's no way that Rufus faked his death because he loved magic too much just to leave and then let her be stuck as the assistant to someone incompetent like Mr. Wacky Pants. And Mr. Wacky Pants hears this and he comes in and he says, hey, I resemble that remark, which I don't know if it's him messing up saying I resent that remark or if he's just admitting that the remark is clearly about him. But either way, it made me laugh out loud while watching. <laughs> classic. Classic. Classic Wacky Pants. So Wacky Pants is very angry and he mocks the gang for thinking that Rufus is alive and then he stomps away. Felidia says that Wacky Pants is just jealous because he became immediately irrelevant once Rufus became famous. And Felidia says that Rufus is not coming back. He's gone. And to prove it, she hands the footage of the failed escape attempt to the gang. She says, here, you can watch the video for yourself. So it's the gang gets handed a snuff film is what happens there. <laughs> <laughs> so she hands them the tape and they go and watch it. And while they are watching it, Lindsay, because she's been in music videos before, notices that part of it looks like CGI. So Velma rewinds. And then she does note that there is a line where the rubble doesn't look like it's super real. So she then codes the computer to remove the effects. And they can remove the green screen from just a DVD copy of a video because this is how computers work in the year 2003. And what they are able to see when you remove the CGI rocks is Rufus coming down from the Wheel of Misfortune and escaping 
escaping through a trap door in the floor. So Daphne concludes that this is clearly pre-recorded, and Velma says that they must have spliced the clip into the live broadcast to make it look like it was real. And then Fred remembers how the cat disappeared when it was behind the statue. So they think maybe there's a trap door behind the statue, and there is. And underneath this trap door is a secret tunnel. They see the cat, and they follow it into a room filled with a bunch of old magic stuff. And then they hear a voice, and that voice is Rufus Raucus. He emerges from the shadows, and we also learn that he's a fan of Lindsay. He goes, oh, are you Lindsay Pagano? You're performing here. Nice. So he is hip with the tunes. Are you Lindsay Pagano signed with Warner Brother Records with a new hit single out <laughs> where you can get at your local Circuit City? Circuit City. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Kyle definitely gets a point for making fun of that. And also the Circuit City reference, now a six to five lead for Kyle here. Rufus says that he left because the theater is just a fun house of tricks. It's not real magic. He didn't like that it was built to where he could do all these obnoxious things as opposed to him just doing classic illusions and such. But suddenly, Rufus's ghost-masked impersonator appears and he starts throwing flames at them. The real Rufus does a disappearing act to get them to escape, which is actually pretty cool. We cut to the gang, Lindsay and Rufus, then watching Mr. Wacky Pants' show from backstage, I'm assuming. At this point, I was kind of confused on the geography, but I'm now thinking that this was a different stage within the same resort, just not the main stage. But Rufus is disgusted that Felidia is working for him because apparently Mr. Wacky Pants tried to steal Rufus's secrets for years. So there is some bad blood between Rufus and Wacky Pants. We then cut to the Fates Fools group, our boy band friends being very upset because they have been removed as the opening act. And now that Rufus is back and not dead, he is now the opening act. So later we see Rufus doing the opening act the night of Lindsay's concert. He tries to reveal that he is back and that it's truly him. He takes off his mask to reveal his face, but then the ghost appears, yelling that Rufus is an imposter. And the gang tries to stop this flying masked version of Rufus, and they accidentally trap the real Rufus. And the ghost is then wreaking all sorts of havoc on stage. But Velma sees a switch that is labeled magnetic polarity and flips it, which causes the ghost to stop floating and instead to be stuck to the floor. They then unmask the ghost and reveal who it is. So I turn it over to the two of you. Who do you think is behind all of these shenanigans? There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yes, I'm happy to answer. Holy shit. Hmm. Alex, do you have a theory? I have a person. I have a person. It's okay if it's just a vibe. You don't need a motive. Just say, I don't trust underscore, and that's totally valid. So... I don't think it's Mr. Wacky Pants because the whole thing about the ghost is that they knew Rufus's tricks, right? And he couldn't even do the, I love using words. He couldn't even do the um, the thing you just talked about, the mixed up body and stuff. The puzzle box, capital P, yeah. capital B. So the person I think it is, and I hate it because it's like instinct, and I don't know if I could back it up, is Felidia. That's who I think it is too. Just because okay. she's the one closest to him. Goes to show you, like, with him out of the way, she knows all the tricks. Like, she could be very famous doing the theater thing while Rufus can have his life as a street performer or whatever. And, and so I that's... think she's pissed at him for faking his death. Therefore, yes. she has to go work for this idiot wacky pants. Exactly. Okay. Well, I'm happy to say you are both correct. Yes. Wow. Look at us. We're killing it. On top of it. Doing great. Yeah. 
Gonna give each of you three points because yes, that was it. Nailed it. It was Felidia. So specifically, she wanted to ruin Del Stone for not making her the new Rufus. Basically, not making her the new Rufus. Del Stone was sexist. Oh! Bringing Del. That damn Del! So, yes, she was upset that rather than make her the key magic act because she knows all of Rufus's stuff, she was upset that Del Stone started hiring in music acts instead. One of the key things, and this is another one of those key pieces of information that doesn't seem like a key piece of information, the key here was that the cat was not afraid of the ghost, so it had to be someone that the cat recognized, which I don't know if that's how cats work, but that's how (laughs) Velma recognized that the ghost wasn't real. I love it. What was the magnet stuff? Was there any significance other than that's how they captured Flidia? Yeah, that's all the magic and hydraulics were. And that kind of explains why Rufus didn't like the new place as much. Interesting. Okay. I kind of appreciate Rufus's integrity. I know. that point, but um, I don't know. I feel like Flidia was wronged. This is a very justified crime. I know. I'm like really siding with her here. Yeah, yeah. it certainly makes her a compelling villain. I kind of feel bad for her. I would like a follow-up of her trial. And I would like her to be defended by uh, maybe a time to kill Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) Or my cousin Vinny Joe Pesci, obviously. Obviously. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's a given. Oh, that's a great sequel to my cousin Vinny. So after two mysteries, Kyle has just the slightest lead of nine to eight as we get into our final mystery, which is a different version of the title where it's not necessarily a pun. It's not Scooby talk. It's just fun. So this one is called It's Mean, It's Green, It's the Mystery Machine. (laughs) So you may have guessed right. This is a story in which the mystery machine is the bad guy. And that had me incredibly intrigued. And I was very happy that this particular episode worked for the format of our show. Because not everyone works, but this is fun. And we get to see what would it be like if the mystery machine was the villain all along. It's like an evil transformer. Pretty much, yeah. It's basically turned into a Decepticon for the episode. (laughs) So our opening scene is Shaggy and Scooby leaving a movie theater. And the mystery machine starts driving by. Shaggy and Scooby think, oh, how nice of Fred to come pick us up. But then they realize no one is driving the mystery machine. And then also it starts to flash bright neon green lights and plays spooky music and it then speeds away and speeds past them. Shaggy then goes with Scooby to find the gang and tell them what happened. They're at not the malt shop. So in old episodes of Scooby-Doo, they would go to the malt shop. In this one, they appear to be at like a smoothie shop. Obviously not branded, so it's not a Jamba Juice or a Smoothie King. But I do appreciate that for the 2000s, they've upped it to uh, the smoothie hangout. You know, where all the (laughs) vaguely aged teenagers, because we have no idea how old the mystery gang is, where they all hang. So this was like right before Froyo. Became the thing, right? Ooh, right on the yes. cusp of Froyo. I would guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, Scooby and Shaggy would have loved like the serve yourself option of Froyo. Mm-hmm. Stick the head under the nozzle and go for it. They would be banned across the country in <laughs> each particular location. Do not serve this man. <laughs> or dog. Or dog. So when Shaggy and Scooby tell them what happened, Fred goes, that's ridiculous. And they go out into the parking lot where the van has returned And it seems to be completely normal. So the whole gang gets in to the mystery machine and they start driving away. And of course, they're driving on a very creepy mountainous road. One of those roads is just carved into the side of a mountain wherever they live in undisclosed country. 
but the mystery machine starts acting up again. Fred can't control the steering wheel or the brakes, and it's about to crash, but Scooby reminds Fred about the mystery machine parachute, because apparently this is also the Mach 5, and it's got a bunch of gadgets in it, so he activates the parachute, and it brings the van to a screeching halt before it can crash off the side of a cliff. Fred is actually Batman. It's true. Maybe. This could be a very interesting Batmobile. So Fred says he just took the van in to the mechanic. So they go back to the mechanic to see if something's wrong or maybe if this guy is nefarious. So the mechanic's name is Murph. He is Murph the mechanic. They visit him the next morning, and he says that the mystery machine was in perfect condition when it left his shop the other day. But Murph does offer the gang $5,000 to trade in the mystery machine because its mileage is getting high and he likes the mystery machine. But Daphne butts in to say, it's not for sale. We're not in the market to sell. And while they're having this conversation, the mystery machine suddenly drives itself out of the auto shop and the gang thinks, oh, maybe someone has stolen it. But it is leaking oil, so it leaves a trail. So the gang follows this trail of oil, and it leads them to a house. But the van is nowhere to be seen at this house. Velma starts to use her laptop to do a reverse search on the address to find out who the owner of the house is. But the rest of the gang is already at the front doorstep, just ringing the doorbell. And I appreciate them throwing technology to the wind and just saying, we have a mystery, Velma. No time for your internet shenanigans. (laughs) I bet Fred knocks like a cop. Like, he's got that strong three bam, bam, bam. (laughs) He doesn't, which I'm thankful for. I believe they just push the doorbell like normal human beings. But yeah, it would terrify me if Fred put that approach out there. So when they ring the doorbell, a woman named Susan answers the door. She has short blonde hair. She has this really cool purple suit turtleneck combo, and she has matching purple lipstick. Again, not an important detail, but I appreciate her style. And she invites the gang into the house and says that she would love to talk to the press, but she's in the middle of a piano lesson, so they have to wait. And while this person, this little kid, is playing on the piano, she makes a a funny-sounding noise, and Susan says, oh, don't worry, doll, the keyboard is just a little out of tune. I'm not musically inclined enough to know, but isn't a keyboard only if it's the electric type thing? I was very confused. So when I watched this, I took note. I was like, that's weird. Why would she call it a keyboard? But the gang lets them know we are not the press. Uh, <laughs> we we are here asking about our van. I'm going to start answering solicitors like that. Like anytime <laughs> like someone comes to my door to sell solar or pest services, I'm like, listen, I don't have time to talk to the press today. And then just hang up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good approach. So the gang goes into a room and it is decorated all over with merchandise for a band called the Mystery Kids. And the gang wonders, oh, yeah, whatever happened to those people? So Susan reveals that she is the mother of the Mystery Kids. She doesn't have time for an interview. And that's when Velma explains they are not reporters, but they ask about the Mystery Machine. And Susan reveals that that van used to be their tour bus. So we learn the origin stories of the Mystery Machine. It was the tour bus for this musical group Partridge Family-esque called the Mystery Kids. And Fred bought it used, which I thought was really interesting that it wasn't just a van that they decked out for their mystery solving purposes. Yeah, that's the most my early 2000 shit ever, like yeah. getting an origin story. Are we to believe that they were already a mystery solving group who just happened to find a van called the Mystery Machine? Or did the van like prompt them to be like, hey, we could solve mysteries. 
We could do this. Yeah. Is it a chicken? Is it an egg? Is it Mystery Inc. or Mystery Machine? What came first? <laughs> Maybe because this is the 2003 reboot, the purpose of this was to give it context as to why people in the mid-2000s would have such an old-school van. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's what they were going for. But the kids who are the mystery kids aren't that much older. They're high school age now. So I don't know. Maybe, but I guess like their tour bus could have been an old van. And then it, this is the second round of used car. I don't know. I just found it fascinating to know that at least in this Scooby-Doo universe, it didn't originate with the crew. It's also some real like self-important white guy stuff of Fred <laughs> buying a van that says like, something about mystery and he's like mm, i could be a detective <laughs> and then just running with it kyle just big anti-fred energy here no <laughs> is fred still wearing the ascot in these episodes he's not he's not no so in what's new scooby-doo he has a i believe it's a white and blue striped sweater with a collared shirt underneath it's a lot nicer they also changed daphne's outfit they modernize it a bit and they also modernize fred into not being He's not a jerk. He's nice and kind of like a lovable goof where he's either oblivious or he's just doesn't recognize what's going on. He's not, you know, as macho type dude. It's more of like, oh, Fred, which I, I appreciate his rebranding in this series as well. Yeah, that's right around the time where we get FPJ as live action Fred and FPJ is a true joy. FPJ. So. Mm. Mm. So Susan leads the gang into the recording studio, but the mystery kids are busy doing non-musical stuff. The girl is looking for prom dresses, and the boy is practicing tennis. They apparently have a concert tomorrow, and they also have an album they need to finish, but they are shirking their responsibilities because they are over it. We learn that their names are Andy and Mandy, because, of course, and Mandy is surprised that the old tour bus still works. They tell them that the van has been acting strange. They ask if they know something that could help them fix the problem. Susan explains that the van was owned by the keyboard player whose name is Flash Flanagan. And the gang asks, can we talk to Flash? And Andy responds, yeah, you could with a Ouija board. And Susan explains that Flash is dead. He apparently died in an accident after one of their concerts, and he's now in, quote, rock and roll heaven. And then Susan immediately goes, ooh, rock and roll heaven would be the great name for a song, which feels insensitive on Susan's part. <laughs> <laughs> feels like they weren't that fond of Flash Flanagan. Right. So Shaggy thinks that the ghost of Flash Flanagan is haunting the mystery machine. And Mandy says that Flash is actually the one who painted the flowers on the van to remind him of his garden. And then there's some snide comment between Daphne and Velma. One of them says, didn't I thought Fred said he painted the flowers on. <laughs> so questionable origins. So the gang leaves the house and they bump into a redheaded teenager holding a stack of books. He's got a sweater vest, glasses, pocket protector, classic nerd. And he is Randy Dinwiddie of the Mystery Kid family. So he's Andy and Mandy's brother. But Randy is not part of the group because he's tone deaf. He studies at DeFry's Technical Academy. And... The gang finds this interesting just because at no point was he mentioned and they don't know what's going on. Why has he not been brought up by anyone that we've talked to so far? So the gang is walking at night and the mystery machine comes speeding towards them again. It's glowing. It's playing the spooky music. They get very close to being run over by the van, but they climb up a fire escape to safety. Unfortunately, Velma's laptop gets crunched in the process. So they follow the van in a taxi. They hail a taxi and follow the van. But 
they lose track of it near DeFry's Technical Academy. But they remember, hey, this is where Randy goes to school. Why don't we check stuff out? So they go in and they see Randy and they ask him, is there any reason why the mystery machine would go here? Are you involved in this in any way? Randy says he wouldn't know because he was never part of the Mystery Kids due to him being tone deaf. He's working on robotics, though. And Velma asks how the robots he's working on are controlled without control panels. Randy explains that he can control them wirelessly from a laptop. So Daphne says that Susan must be proud of his work. But Randy says, no, she only pretends to care and helps me with my homework. But she really just cares about the music and the success of the band. I've always been the ugly duckling child of the family because I don't have any musical gifts. So there was the story about when the cops first called OJ to let him know that his wife had been murdered and he didn't like ask how or anything like that. He basically set himself up to seem very, very guilty. Randy, a lot of the same vibes. Randy and OJ. <laughs> did you just compare oh. Scooby-Doo to the OJ trial? <laughs> I sure did. Alex, if I could bring it back to the OJ trial, I will bring it back to the OJ trial. <laughs> And you know what? Kyle's getting a bonus point for it because that is the sleuthing ingenuity we look for here. <laughs> Eight to ten in favor of Kyle. So the gang goes back to Murph's auto shop. He's not there, so they're going to poke around. They find a room full of mystery kids collectibles. There's an alarm clock that they bump into that starts to play their hit song, which, at least according to the chorus, goes, you're too cute, too cute to forget. And it's honestly very catchy. <laughs> <laughs> they turn on the TV and the TV starts playing a video called Rewind the Music, clearly making a pun it behind the music. And it's about the rise and fall of the Mystery Kids. And it says at the infamous City Park concert, Flash Flanagan, who in the video we see, he was a grown man, a grown adult man in the Mystery Kids. Very strange. <laughs> he stormed off at this concert and he was never seen again. But what's stranger is that every week a wild daisy appears on his headstone in the graveyard. <sighs> So the gang goes to check out this gravesite, and they go on Mystery Kids bikes and scooters that were in this memorabilia room in Murph's auto body shop, and they see Andy and Mandy there. And his tombstone says, R.I.P. Flash Flanagan, rock and roll will never die, which is just a fantastic tombstone for the pianist in effectively the Partridge family. The mystery machine appears again, and now it has a scary face on it, which I think is just one of those... TV show things like I don't think someone took the time in between times we've seen it to paint a scary face on it. It just has one now so that it's more terrifying. And it does a classic chase scene around the cemetery. But the song is not even some sort of instrumental thing or some off brand song. It's I Do Anything by Simple Plan, who does the theme song. My favorite Simple Plan song. What a banger. <laughs> Love a this. True banger. I was vibing out so hard. So Shaggy recognizes that the spooky music that's playing from the Mystery Machine is a Mystery Kids song. So Shaggy's running away as the Mystery Machine's back doors swing open and trap him inside. So the gang rides on these bikes and scooters after the Mystery Machine to try to save him. The van drives out of control onto the highway, but then is stopped by a police officer. They explain that Shaggy wasn't driving, and then he gets off with just a warning, but the police are going to impound the van. And I do appreciate that the cop says, quote, what's going on, buddy? Where'd you get your license? Clown school? <laughs> Which sounds like something a New Yorker would say, not necessarily a cop. But I just appreciate the little dig here. So then we cut to Andy and Mandy rehearsing. Susan's giving some critique. What's really nice in the show is that they have background music just playing in the episode. And the critique that she gives to them is that they need to pick up the pace. And then the background music increases in tempo, which I thought was really funny. And just the people making the show clearly having a fun time. 
fun. I love that. Now, Randy is also here, and they are at where the concert is going to be. And he's starting to set up wirelessly controlled mics. He says that Susan made him do it by threatening to stop paying for his tuition unless he did the tech for the show. So the gang gets kicked out of the rehearsal, and they see Murph jamming out as they leave the stage. Murph says that he's been looking for them, and he offers them $2,500 plus whatever the impounding and towing fees are for the van. And again, they say, look, we're not selling you the van, but hey, also, what's up with that weird mystery kid's room in your auto body shop, Murph? And he's really embarrassed about it, but he admits he's obsessed with the band. That's why he wants the van. Can I please have it? And again, they're like, no, dude. As the concert is going to start, suddenly one of the lights falls down onto the middle of the stage. And Andy asks Randy, well, hey, what did you do to this? Are you trying to sabotage us? Are you trying to, you know, make this hurt us or break our equipment, whatever? Randy says that he wasn't near the light, but Mandy accuses him of trying to sabotage the show. She says the fallen light could have caused a fire, but Randy says that's impossible. The curtains I brought are lead-lined curtains that are fireproof. And he tries to insist again that it wasn't him. I don't know if lead line curtains is an actual thing, but the way they talked about it on the show, it felt like very much a thing. That's interesting. I thought we were out on using lead in things. I thought so too. That's what I thought so as well. Maybe we took all the lead that used to be in our paint. We're like, we got to use it for something. Put it in the curtains, baby. Put it in the curtains. I'm sure there's a safer version. And I wonder if that's actually a thing in music venues where the curtains are lined with something for sound purposes or tech purposes. But who's to say? So Shaggy thinks, again, that it's Flash's ghost, and Velma says that Daphne will hold a seance to contact him. So we cut to the mystery machine turning on, driving out of the auto impound, breaking through gates and stuff. And then when we cut back, the seance is happening. So Fred, Velma, Murph, Susan, Andy, Mandy, and Randy, anyone we could suspect, is around the table. And Daphne's in this full getup doing the seance, and she has a purple crystal ball, this big psychic outfit. Susan is skeptical, and asks where Madame Daphne learned to contact spirits, Daphne says that, oh, I watched an infomercial on the Psychic Channel, which I just thought was a fun little note there. That's big early 2000s energy, too. Yeah. Infomercials. It's like magic bullet energy. Listen, I still love a good infomercial. (laughs) Hard to find these days. Hard to find. So Daphne then asks the spirits to make the table rise, and it does. But then the show shows us that it's just Shaggy and Scooby grabbing table legs. They're underneath, so they are in on this ruse that they're pulling on everybody. But Daphne calls for Flash to reveal who in the table corrupted the mystery machine. And at that moment, the mystery machine comes rolling up, flashing the neon lights, playing the music. Shaggy and Scooby get really scared, so they rush out from under the table, making it clear that Daphne doesn't actually have psychic abilities. Velma then drops one of the curtains on the mystery machine, and it stops. And she explains that the lead lining prevents wireless commands from getting through to the van. Fred says that the person who is controlling the van wirelessly must be under the table. There was a chase scene, all the commotion people left and whatever. So then they do a dramatic tablecloth pull away move and it reveals who has been controlling the mystery machine. So now I turn to the two of you. Who do you think is behind this? It can't be this obvious. (laughs) Like, hmm, I wonder which character who works in robotics and controls things wirelessly was controlling the mystery machine. Sometimes it's Mm. easy. Sometimes it's a misdirect. I have two separate theories. Okay. Actually, I don't even have theories. I just have suspects. All right. Well, you will need to make a guess. That is how the podcast works. (laughs) I am going to say that it is the mom. 
Okay. I have no reason for this other than it's too obvious to be Randy and showbiz parents give me weird vibes. Okay. Valid concerns. Alex, what are you thinking? I know this is wrong. Like, I know it's too complicated for this because this has really thrown me. I'm looking at all my notes. Mm, I don't want to say it out loud. It sounds so silly. I promise you there have been worse guesses on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Is it? Possible that Flash was Susan all along. Ooh. Oh my God. Explain. I, love that. I really like this. Because like I know that's not the case, but like in my head, if I were writing the story, playing piano, needing some way to facilitate stuff, and like the day because Flash fits into this somehow, right? I'm overthinking it. She's like Mrs. Doubtfire, but reverse. <laughs> uh, uh okay. Here's my theory. (laughs) This Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. hit me and it's probably wrong, but here we go. I love it already. I think it's Andy and Mandy. Okay, okay. Because they don't want to do this. They're not that interested in music. Mm -hmm. They've fallen victims of their mom who's like forcing them into it. And so maybe there was some sort of like scheme, like if they make this band demonic and terrible, that it would ruin their reputation enough to not have to perform again. Okay, all right. So I am happy to report that Kyle was correct. But I did give Alex a bonus point for each of those (laughs) answers because I loved both of those. Those are great theories. Both are lovely. And you weren't super wrong with the Andy and Mandy thing because they do end up expressing that they don't want to do it anymore. But the real person behind all this was Susan. And the reason that she did it was to try to bring out some press. That's why she was saying I don't have time to talk to reporters. She was trying to get this phenomenon into the news so that people would say, oh, yeah, remember the mystery kids? There's been weird stuff happening. I didn't realize they were still doing concerts. Let's go see them. So she was trying to drum up commotion for it. The way that she was able to control everything is that when she was helping Randy with his homework, she was actually learning robotics herself so that she could control the mystery machine. So they do all of that. The kids basically say, all right, this is whack. We're quitting. Obviously, this is ridiculous. So they do quit Not there. Not today, D-list Chris Jenner. Yeah. So after these points, though, Kyle gets three for the correct guess. Alex gets two for incredible theories. But that would mean that the final score of this episode is 13 to 10 in favor of Kyle. Kyle putting up a perfect score, three for three. Wow. You have avenged your past performance and you have won this episode of meddling adults, meaning that you have won some charity money for blessings in a backpack. Kyle, how does it feel? This is arguably the greatest honor of my entire life, (laughs) Uh, especially with I was worked over by Encyclopedia Brown in my previous episode, losing Mm -hmm. to actually your co-host, Mike, Adam. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it feels great. Great to go out there, get a win for the ball club. Yes. And I got to say, Alex, a great performance. You still hit double digits. You just, you know, it's one of those good defense, better offense things. It's hard to beat someone who didn't get any mysteries wrong. Just going to be a tricky challenge to overcome. I know. And I fully expected this to happen. So I'm not surprised. Kyle's brilliant. (laughs) He's also been on the show once prior. So, you know, not a bad first performance. I want a chance to redeem myself. That's all I ask. All right. Keep you in mind whenever we do, you know. In the future. Know. Yeah, if we do the uh, the tournament of people who came so close, we'll, uh, we'll get you in the <laughs> If we get the losers to come back for a special <laughs> podcast, we'll call Look, you. We love a consolation bracket. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> but really, both of you, Alex and Kyle, thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast. Alex, if people want to find you doing stuff on the internet or elsewhere, where can they find you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Alex McDaniel, but the majority of my work and the stuff I'm most passionate about is at for the win, 
ftw.usatoday.com. We're a lot of fun. You should read us. We're great. Great. And Kyle, how about you? You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Banduho, talking sports movies every Monday with a guest, usually Alex, sometimes Mike, sometimes other people. <laughs> it's big screen sports. And then if you like baseball interviews, that is from Phenom to the Farm. That comes at you every other Tuesday. Yes, all good stuff. All of the content that you both make is lovely, and I highly recommend it. Kyle and Alex, I am so thankful that you joined. Listeners, I'm so thankful that you listened, and I'm just thankful that everyone here is back listening to season four. We can all together be our truest selves, and that is when we are Meddling Adults. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Meddling Adults. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by me, Mike Schubert. It is also produced and edited by Sherry Guo. The music is by Bettina Campamanas and Brandon Google. The art is by Maayan Atias and Kelly Schubert. And the web design is by both me and Kelly Schubert. If you want to help out the show financially, you can do so at patreon.com slash meddlingadults, signing up for a monthly pledge, or you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash meddlingadults. All those funds help go towards our winning charities. And if you want to help in a non-monetary way, just talk about the show, whether you reach out to someone that you think would like the show or you post about it on social media, those things really help. Word of mouth helps podcasts a lot. And the more people that know about the show, the more people will listen and the more money that we can raise for charity. All good stuff. If you want to find us on social media, we're at Meddling Adults on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We also have a subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash meddling adults. And if you ever want to learn anything about the show, you can go to our website, meddlingadults.com. Make sure you're subscribed to Meddling Adults so you don't miss our next episode, which will be a battle between the co-hosts of Tipping Pitches, Bobby Wagner and Alex Baisley. Super fun episode. Good time. You're going to enjoy it. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll see you next Wednesday for the finale of season 4A as we take a little bit of a break before we do season 4B in the fall of 2023.